help lead the church here. And it's great to have you, you with us. Let me encourage you, if you've got a Bible with you today, pull it out, open it up. Um, we are going to be sort of journeying around multiple texts this afternoon, so it'd be great to follow, follow along. And, and let me just encourage you in general, I would always encourage you, bring your paper Bible with you rather than your phone. All these technologies are great, but easily, easily distracted. What an interesting watch that video was, right? The question that was asked to, to these youngsters was, what do you think of the Bible today? Really interesting question and a couple of key views that came out in that video. We had, we had some people that just didn't care. You know, so we had some people that were saying the Bible is full of good guidelines to help me live a good moral life. But ultimately, let's be honest, it's not true, is it? It's a take it or leave it kind of thing. What really matters in life is about living a good life, about being kind, loving our neighbors, being charitable, Play my part in creating a greater society. You see, we're, we're happy to take and apply some of the principles of the Bible, but we'd rather just leave it there. You know, it's not that important, is it? Stop taking it so seriously. Who, who really cares? It's just a historic document. And then you've got this other camp of people. You know, the Bible's written by some crazy nutters out there. How on earth can you believe that? It was interesting hearing that girl at the end. It's just an old document that, you know, probably outdated now. It's the same as the historical books that I study at university. Or maybe it's the same as fantasy films like Twilight. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. But I can hear almost some of you saying, but that's America. You know, that's not, we're not like that here in Scotland. Surely not. We don't think that. Well, I disagree. And let me just show you this quick I love a video this afternoon. I'm going to sh show you another very quick minute and a half video, really cute, but yeah, it's going to open our eyes to, to what I think is happening in Scotland. Dad, are you painting a face on an egg? Yes, I am. Have you lost your mind? No, it's for Easter. Oh, Easter. Right, okay. What's wrong with Easter now? I just don't understand what it's all about. Why do you give me chocolate? How do you mean? When I ask for chocolate, Mum said, no, 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 not good for you. Sometimes you give me more chocolate, what I can eat. Like when? Easter, Halloween, Christmas, my birthday. Okay, okay. The country has gripped by obesity. All our celebrations have loads of chocolate. Yeah, I suppose you're right. I don't get the characters either. The characters? The Easter characters. We learned all about Easter at nursery. Yeah. Are Easter Bunny and Jesus best pals? Well, not really. Is Easter Bunny in the Bible? Does, does he carry a basket of eggs all the time? Well, the thing is, he's not really in the... Does Jesus totally love chocolate then? Well, the thing is, Easter Bunny's not really in the Bible. What do you think Jesus... His favourite chocolate is? Uh, I, don't, I don't think he had a favourite. My favourite's purple. Listen, Isla, lots of people believe lots of different things, but the most important thing is that we have fun together. You know what I really don't get? What's that? Bunnies don't even lay eggs. Brilliant. I don't know if any of you remember that a few years ago. <laughs> I just think it's brilliant. So cute, but also alarming. Alarming, because in Scotland, we love these nice stories that help us facilitate this nice, warm, fuzzy feelings, whether it's the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus. We like celebrating, you know, these key moments within the Bible, 
They give us a great excuse to have extra school holidays, so what's not to like? But the Bible, come on, it's not true, is it? So outdated, so not relevant for today's progressive culture. You see, Scotland today is increasingly searching for truth. And what is it? We as a nation are becoming more and more and more skeptical, more cynical about the reality, the accuracy, and the relevance of the Bible. All that you need to do is go out in the street this afternoon and ask the average Glaswegian what his or her thoughts are or views are on the Bible, and I can guarantee you a large percentage of the Bible of the people of Glasgow would say that it's just full of ancient myths. People shouldn't take it too seriously. How can you believe that nonsense? So why is it that every week at Glasgow Grace, we open the Bible and we teach from it with authority? We claim that the Bible is authoritative in a way that no other writings are. We say that the Bible is God-breathed, that it's God's Word revealed to us. But what makes us just trust that it is? Surely it's more than just believing what it claims itself to be. Why don't we look at the books of the Bible as just another source of many that are out there that helps us live our best lives, be kind to our neighbors, be charitable? Why is it that the Bible trumps every other thought or belief? These are the kind of questions that we're going to be asking over the next few weeks as we start our mini-series titled, What's So Great About the Bible? And today we're starting with how the Bible was put together, how it came to be the book that it is today. Now at Glasgow Grace, we usually teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, understanding the context of each book that we're preaching through, understanding the narrative of the story, and then how the gospel applies to us. We've been doing this recently in our our series in 1 and 2 Samuel. However, over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a slightly different approach. We're going to be looking to answer the questions that people might have about the Bible without assuming its authority. So the aim of this mini-series is to show you why we believe that the Bible is God-breathed, that the Bible is profitable for teaching, and that God speaks through the Bible to us week in week out, day in and day out. We believe that every time we pick up the Bible and read it, that God speaks directly into our hearts, directly into our situations through His Word. So before we dive in and look at this today, I just want to explain the meaning of one word that I'll be using a few times today, and that word is the word canon. Canon is used to describe the books that make up the Bible, and it comes from a Greek word that means measuring stick. So the question asked of a book, whether it was to be included or not included in the Bible, was always, does it measure up to the biblical standard for a book in the Bible? So when we talk about the Old Testament canon, we are talking about the 39 books that make up the Old Testament completed in about 430 B.C., when we talk about the New Testament canon, we are talking about the 27 books that make up the New Testament circulating from 90 AD. So before we dive in today and look at how the Bible was put together, let's ask God to come and reveal to us the truth of His Word. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that 
through your word, you have drawn us to yourself. Lord, I thank you that we can have full confidence this afternoon that you are speaking to us because your word speaks into our hearts, into our lives, into our situations. Lord, we place ourselves underneath your word this afternoon. We say that your word has ultimate authority over our lives, over this church. Lord, come and change us, challenge us, open our eyes, open our, our ears. Would you, yeah, change us this afternoon for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the first question we need to ask when we look at the Bible was, how was it put together? And who actually wrote the Bible? Was it given directly from heaven? Well, there was one small part that was given directly to Moses from God on tablets on, of stone on Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 34. But otherwise, the Bible was written by real and ordinary people. And we believe that their writings were preserved in the Bible and were inspired by God. So, so who wrote the Bible? Well, before we get into that question of who wrote it, I want to explain why I'm about to almost entirely focus on the New Testament this afternoon. And the reason for that is that, we can, that if we can show that the New Testament is God's Word, we can be certain that the 39 books of the Old Testament are too. Let me just repeat that. So if, if we can be confident and if we can be certain that the New Testament is God's Word, we can be certain that the 39 books of the Old Testament too. So why is that? Well, it's because in the 27 books of the Old Testament, Jesus, Luke, Paul, Peter, and the rest of the writers are clear about the Old Testament's authority. They describe it as the law and the prophets. You see, they share the belief of the Jews, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, who had accepted the full canon of the Old Testament books by around 430 BC, which is around the time Malachi, its final book, was written. So listen to what Jesus says in the Old Testament, in, about the Old Testament in Matthew 5, verse 17 to 19. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Similarly, in Luke's gospel account, Jesus is said to have explained that the whole Old Testament is ultimately about him. Luke 24, verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The apostle John, like the writer to the Hebrews, said that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says in John 1, 45, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of of Joseph. You see, the New Testament is clear that the Old Testament is God's Word. So, if we can show that the New Testament is uniquely authoritative and from God, then we can be confident that the whole Bible is trustworthy and true. So, let's start with, with who wrote the New Testament books, the 27 New Testament books. Let's turn to 2 Peter 1.16. I did warn you there's going to be a lot of flicking through your Bibles this afternoon. Poor Paul's got the job of 
keeping up with us on the screen, but he's doing a great job. So this chapter here, 2 Peter 1.16, um, answers this question for us. So starting in verse 16, it says, We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You see, unlike the early churches that were closer to Jerusalem, these churches that Peter wrote to in modern-day Turkey were separated from the events of Jesus' life by hundreds of miles. So in the same way that we might legitimately ask the question, can these books be trusted as authoritative, it's likely that the people that Peter was writing to are asking exactly the same question. And Peter's response is to say, you can rely on these stories because I, along with others, I saw it. Peter was one of many eyewitnesses who actually heard and saw what took place. See, in verse 17, Peter is talking about time he eyewitnessed the transfiguration. This is a real moment where Jesus is with Peter, James, and John, and he sees Jesus lit up with God's glory. Jesus began to shine brightly like the sun, and while Peter is mumbling nervously about some temps, they hear the audible voice of God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, if you're new to all this, today's your first day in a church, that might sound pretty crazy. It might sound pretty mythical, non-historical, but that's exactly what Peter is trying to say. He's pleading with these believers to say, no, 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 you can believe because I saw it with my own eyes. I heard God's voice with my own ears. This is the non-fictional section. See, you can believe this afternoon that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he performed miracles, that Pilate found no fault in him in the, in the governor's headquarters, that he was killed in our place. He rose from the dead, he ascended on high, and he poured the Holy Spirit out on believers. Why? Because Peter saw it happen in these very places. So Peter, eyewitness number one. Eyewitness number two, Luke begins his gospel by saying that he saw it too. It's not just one eyewitness, another one's coming forward. Luke says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Did you, did you hear that? He says, many have been writing about these events. Many. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some, pa some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have certainty containing the things you've been taught. Okay, and eyewitness three, John, near the end of his gospel, he tells us why he wrote it. And he says, these are written so that you may believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, the Gospels are eyewitness accounts, stories of the life, death, 
resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and each of them tells it from a slightly different angle. That's why it's a brilliant place to get started if you've never read the Bible before. If you have a friend who is, who is interested in understanding more of what you believe, then get them to read one of the Gospels. Maybe try the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest account. And if you or one of your friends need a Bible to start this, then please just let us know. We would love to give you a Bible free of charge to keep. We don't want anyone to have any barriers getting in the way to reading these accounts for themselves. So if you'd like a Bible, please speak to your Grace Community Leader or grab myself at the end or Lewis and Abby, and we'd love to help you with that. So we've had eyewitness one, Peter. Eyewitness two, Luke. Eyewitness three, John. Now eyewitness four, Paul. He appeals to the church in Corinth in chapter 15 by saying this. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. It's like saying, well, if you don't believe me, just ask the 251 plus others who are still around who saw Jesus alive and heard him teaching after his death too. You see, the New Testament was written by eyewitnesses, people who saw what happened themselves. But who were these people? They were the people that Jesus had made apostles, and on some occasions, their co-workers who, who wrote with their authority. Now, that's not just important because they saw and heard and wrote it down, but because Jesus, God in the flesh, gave them his authority that he had received from his Father. When Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, he sums it up by saying that by God's grace, he was made an apostle to show that the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the apostles had a God-given insight and authority to explain the truth about Jesus. That was Ephesians 3, but in the chapter before Ephesians 2, Paul has already said that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus the cornerstone. Peter even goes as far as calling writings from Paul as scripture. See, in Peter, in 2 Peter 3.16, he says that his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Isn't that quite a comforting thing? That Peter found some of what Paul said quite tricky to understand. These men were used to establish the church of Jesus and all these writings, included in the New Testament canon, were completed by 90 AD. So who decided on which books to include in the Bible? Well, some people make the observation that there's no official decision on what was to be in and what was to be out of the New Testament canon until the 4th century, which was after Rome had adopted Christianity as its religion. They say, ah, of course, it was these powerful monks who put it all together because they were just trying to control the people. To be fair to them, we can read Eusebius' writings and others in the third century and see that there were some debate about what should be regarded as Scripture and what shouldn't. 
but only a small handful were ever considered. And due to inconsistencies and being written later, not by eyewitnesses or with apostolic authority, they were rejected. And when we weigh up all the evidence, it becomes very clear that these monks would have had to perform miracle upon miracle to come up with the mountain of evidence we have for Bible manuscripts today. They would have had to have sourced 24,000 texts and replaced them with extremely convincing documents. We have more evidence today for the reliability of the canon of Scripture than ever. And the more discoveries that are made prove that what we have here in our hands in the English text is incredibly accurate. Do you know that the evidence is so vast that if we took all the non-Bible manuscripts found from the early church, we'd still piece together all 27 New Testament books just from their quotes and letters and teaching notes. Thankfully, we do have 6,000 manuscripts or part manuscripts of the New Testament alone. So just a wee bonus. So it's interesting to see how people view the Bible versus other ancient manuscripts, often assuming that the Bible is far less reliable as a source. Have you heard that before? Oh, I just can't trust the Bible. Let's compare, shall we? Let's take Plato's writings. Now, these are well documented, and no historian in their right mind would ever challenge Plato's existence or the reliability of his writings. Yeah, there isn't a copy of any of his writings to be found that dates before 900 AD. Yes, 900 AD, that's 1,500 years after they were written. Now, the nearest ancient text to the Bible and its number of manuscripts is um, to support its reliability is, is Homer's Liad. It is 643 manuscripts to date. That's 25,000 for the Bible and 643 for the closest. You see, the earliest manuscript of Homer's Liad was found 500 years after the original was written. That's 500 years or 30. What should we be more skeptical about? A few years ago, I played football for the um, Churches League, a, a team in the Churches League. It was, don't look like I play anymore, do I? I'm still playing. Um, but a few years ago, I was playing, and I remember one game. It was a really cold, icy January evening. The temperature was so cold that the, the football pitch that we were supposed to be playing on, a grass football pitch, are completely frozen over. Rock solid. So we took the decision, let's, let's move the game, let's be sensible, we still want to play, we'll move the game to an AstroTurf pitch. Now, the key to playing on these pitches is all about the footwear. So what you want to have is you want to have a nice pair of AstroTurf trainers that give you a little bit more grip so when you're running around you can grip, rather than your studded boots, which if you wore on that you'd be falling all over the place. So our team arrived, got our AstroTurf trainers on, started warming up, oh this is going great. Oh, extra grip on the icy surface. And the more we warmed up, the more confident we became. And then the problem arose. The op opposition team showed up. They walked onto the pitch. And straight away, you could see that they hadn't got the message about the change of pitch. Rather than walking onto the pitch wearing their AstroTurf trainers, they all had these boots on with, with studs on the bottom. They started running around. And it suddenly turned to this scene from Bambi on Ice. 
players slipping all over the place, falling over. They clearly had no grip. Now, enter the referee and the linesman. Now, their job was to make this decision on whether the game should go ahead or not. They had a little look around the pitch and thought, yeah, it's Glasgow League, so let's play this. And for some reason, to my team's delight, the referee just decided to play the game. So 90 minutes came and went. The game finished 9-0 to our team. Praise God, no injuries either. You see, the referee let this game go ahead when it was clear that they shouldn't even have let it happen. If anyone had seen the conditions in the two different sets of footwear, you would have known that's just don't let that happen. The referee shouldn't have let it happen. And it's exactly the same when we look at the evidence for the Bible versus any other ancient manuscript. If there was a competition between the evidence for any ancient text versus the, ancient, the, versus the evidence for the Bible, then it just shouldn't happen. The Bible would dwarf them all. The Bible is a historical beast compared to any other text of its time. Let me tell you a true story. In 1947, a young Bedouin shepherd was having an average day. He was going through one of his regular checks when he realized that one of his goats had gone missing. So he sets off to look for it. He finds himself along the west cliffs of the Dead Sea, checking the many caves and crags along the way. When he comes across a deep cave, he decides to throw some stones in to see if he could hear his sheep trying to run away from them, hopefully not hit them. What I imagine he didn't expect was the echoing sounds of smashing pottery as the stones hit them. It turns out that inside one of these pottery pots were leather-bound copies of the Bible, or Bible texts dating back to A.D. 68. Now, this is one of the most significant finds of Bible manuscripts. See, these Dead Sea Scrolls were so accurately matched by the text that we have in possession now that 95% of what was written 1,000 years later was found to be identical what was found by the shepherd in 1947. That means the copying process of Bible texts was extraordinarily accurate, and we can rely on what we have today. It turns out that the, the Qumran community, a particular sect of Jews, hid these in 68 AD when the Romans were on their way to destroy Qumran. As well as a full Old Testament, there were verses from the Gospel of Mark, in the book of Acts, from Paul's letter to the Romans and to Timothy, Paul's letters to the exiles in modern-day Turkey, and James's letters to the twelve. Now, if you think about that, that means they must have all been written between Jesus' resurrection, A.D. 33, and the Qumran persecution by the Romans in A.D. 68, soon after the events themselves. So how can someone tell you that these were conveniently written in Rome after Constantine adopted Christianity in 310 AD? Besides, Rome's theology wasn't well served by these texts. That's why they made it so hard for ordinary people to access them. So what does all this mean? Sure, it's interesting, right? But what does it really mean? It means that the early Christians viewed what we call now the New Testament canon as God's authoritative word well before the 4th century AD. It was written by eyewitnesses who were given apostolic authority by God. 
And in these writings, Jesus and the apostles make it clear that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. So as we close today, I want to ask you the same question we heard at the start of the video today. What do you think of the Bible? Do you view the Bible as God-breathed, God-inspired, God's Word revealing itself to you? just take it and leave it sure it's helpful when I need a bit of inspiration in life or I've had a grievance and and I need a bit of encouragement through through a a verse actually it's pretty irrelevant for us let me challenge you this week find some time to to write down a couple of sentences why you believe why, why you believe that the Bible has been put together and then spend some time immersing yourself in the truth of God's Word and praising Him for His life-giving, life-changing Word. If you're here today and you wouldn't count yourself as a Christ follower, let me encourage you to ask whoever you came along with to read the Gospel of Mark with you. It's a short eyewitness account of the Gospel, and I can guarantee you one thing it has the power to transform your life to bring you true life true satisfaction if you're if you're here by yourself you come by yourself feel free to grab myself or lewis or abby at the end you can you can um think about how we do that so as naomi and the band come back up i just want to encourage you to get on your feet and we're just going to spend a bit of time responding to God's word in a few different ways this afternoon. So the first way that we can respond is through communion. So as you can see, we've got four tables set out in the four corners of the room. So during the next couple of songs, feel free to go up and grab a cup of bread and a cup of juice. And that, that really resembles Christ's body, which has been broken for you and his blood, which has been shed for you says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you know Christ today, I'd encourage you to go up and take communion. And what we're doing there is we are remembering and we are celebrating. We are remembering that our sins have been taken away from us, that Jesus has paid the cost. He's paid the price for us. And now we can enter in cleansed, that we can come in as saints. Second thing is this afternoon, if you've got words of encouragement for the church, please come down and and grab me. I'll be down this bottom corner here and we can have a little chat about how we fit that in. But for now, I just encourage you, let's stand together and we'll pray as these guys lead us in a, a few songs of response. Father God, I thank you for your word. Lord, we say that so often and almost just becomes this phrase that we say, Lord, but this afternoon we are truly thankful that you have revealed yourself to us through the word of God. 
Lord, I thank you that every time we pick up this word, we can have certainty that you speak to us. So, Lord, help us to be a people who love your word. Help us to be a people who overflow with your word, that we just love to spend time to know more of you through your word. Lord, I thank you that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it has the, has the power to change our lives, to transform our lives, to make us more like Jesus. Father, we say this afternoon that we want to be more like your son, Jesus. Lord, would you change us? We open up our hearts to you this afternoon. Lord, where we view your word as some sort of take it or leave it tool, Lord, we repent this afternoon. Lord, we repent. We say that we, we have fallen so far from your standards, but Lord, we pray this afternoon that you Restore us. Lord, restore the, the joy of our salvation this afternoon for all who are saved. Lord, we do pray that we would remember that time that when you poured out your, your saving power on us. Help us to worship you this afternoon. And Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would just be nudging their hearts this afternoon. Lord, help them to know that there is more to life than what this world offers. Lord, that you, your gospel is so much greater. Lord, you are so much greater. Help us to respond to you this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen.